So here's a question. If you care about climate change, gender inequality, about social justice, what do you do with your money? We're in deep trouble, and it's really important that companies like Barclays change their behavior. We cannot go on like this. Black-owned businesses across the Bay Area are seeing a boost. It follows weeks of protests and a renewed focus on racial justice. More people now want their money not just to make a return, but to make the world a better place too. Just yesterday, New York City pension funds announced that we'll be divesting $4 billion from fossil fuels. $4 billion. The result is more company business plans are now factoring in environmental, social and governance issues, or ESG as it's called. On financial markets, it's led to a surge in sustainable or ESG investing. Literally, a $1.7 trillion-sized wave of it. That's the total amount that had flowed into ESG funds by the end of last year. Money seeking out assets and shares in companies ostensibly doing good. But what difference is all that cash really making? When I went inside the machine, it turned out to me to be mostly smoke and mirrors. Until recently, Tarek Fancy was the person to ask. I was previously BlackRock's first chief investment officer for sustainable investing. Tarek used to be a big name in the ESG investing business. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. It handles trillions upon trillions of dollars in investments. It hired Tarek at the start of 2018. I led the process to integrate ESG considerations into all the trillions of dollars of assets. Tarek figured it was a good time to join the ESG investing wave. Even the CEOs of America's biggest companies were saying business should no longer be just about profits. Let's talk about that new mission statement from the Business Roundtable today, sparking a debate about the purpose of a corporation and why maximizing shareholder returns is no longer the main goal. CEOs work to generate profits and return value to shareholders, but the best-run companies do more. The fact that BlackRock CEO Larry Fink was on board too convinced Tarek his move back to Wall Street was the right one. I mean, I started the same week that Larry put out a letter saying that companies need to have social purpose in order to prosper. The size and scale of the firm meant that if we could do it well, there was, at least in my mind, this idea that we could reform capitalism because if the world's largest asset manager goes out on the stage and says we're going to do this and they do it very well, there's a good sense that the rest of the industry will follow. But Tarek's enthusiasm would be short-lived. Less than two years after joining, at the end of 2019, he left BlackRock and headed back home to Toronto. And these days, if you ask him about ESG, well, he doesn't exactly wax lyrical. If I may, I think it's complete bullshit. This is Behind the Money from the Financial Times. I'm Manuela Zaragoza. Over the next five episodes, with the help of FT Correspondents and the FT Moral Money team, we're putting ESG investing and corporate pledges on environment, social and governance issues under the microscope. Some have hailed the new emphasis on ESG as a once-in-a-generation shift in the business consensus, a promise that business and financial markets can solve some of our biggest problems, climate change, inequality, poverty, social injustice. But there's been a backlash, not just from the likes of Tarek Fancy, but also, as we'll hear, from regulators, activists and academics. So will that backlash help make ESG a more meaningful contribution to building back better, the pledge by the US and other governments to make their economies more sustainable, resilient and inclusive? Or will that backlash kill it? We'll come back to Tarek a little later. 
First, what's ESG all about anyway? Well, I first started hearing a lot about ESG back in 2016. And I have to admit, my first reaction when I got all these emails from people talking about ESG was to roll my eyes. In fact, I tended to joke that it should be called eye roll, sneer and groan. Gillian Tett is the FT's editor-at-large and co-founder of Moral Money, the FT team that covers the world of socially responsible business and sustainable finance. Certainly for a long time, ESG, sustainability, all of these buzzwords have seemed like something that came out of the marketing department of companies that was full of hypocrisy and do-gooding and wasn't really where the core of the business and financial world was. But the ESG talk persisted. The emails kept coming. So Gillian took a closer look. Well, I'm trained as an anthropologist. And one of the key ideas in anthropology is that you should try and listen to people without preconception, try and understand what's in their minds. And I realized that the fact I was getting all these emails about ESG was really symbolic of a much bigger zeitgeist shift going on in business and finance around the fundamental point that companies and financiers were realizing that treating companies purely in terms of bounded balance sheets or narrow goals around shareholder returns simply didn't work in a world where everything was so interconnected. We're talking here about things like allegations that the fast fashion chain Boohoo was paying its factory workers in the UK below minimum wages, or questions about climate lobbying by the oil major Chevron, or the role of Procter & Gamble in deforestation. Consumers and investors want to know how the consumer goods giant sources palm oil in its products. We live today in an era of radical transparency. And as a result, when social attitudes change and when employees or customers or investors start demanding different things from before, that can affect how a company operates and affect their bottom line. So in an era of radical transparency where everyone's armed with a smartphone, In an era where no one trusts the government anymore to get really big challenges solved, businesses are increasingly being asked by their own company, employees and their investors and often their customers too to be seen to be doing something to try and address bigger social challenges. ESG is a narrative that fits these times particularly well. Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson is the FT's US business editor. He reckons the financial mess of 2007 and 2008 also played a role in the rise of ESG. You've had this idea since the global financial crisis that the current model of capitalism hasn't been working out perfectly, even for capitalists. And that got real momentum in the decade after that financial crisis. And then you had 2016, the election of Donald Trump. So today I'm going to talk about how to make America wealthy again. The Brexit vote in the UK. I think that was a vote for economic and political freedom and freedom for this country. Which really startled the elites of finance and business into thinking that maybe they had to change. Maybe they had somehow lost touch with many of the stakeholders. These were employees and customers who were voting in a way that they never foresaw. And I think those were great wake-up calls for them. It was enough to prompt one CEO to investigate for himself. Because at PayPal, we believe your money should work for you, not the other way around. It's that simple. But what PayPal CEO Dan Schulman found was that living on the wages he paid was anything but simple. 
he decided to go and look at what the daily conditions were and the weekly finances were like for the people manning his call centers and doing you know, relatively humdrum jobs at the, the bottom of the org chart, if you like. And he was shocked to discover that the vast majority of them had nothing left at the end of the month. And they were all, you know, frankly, living in fear of the roof falling in or of a family member getting sick and requiring expensive treatment. The washing machine breaking down. Exactly. And so he implemented a series of changes, including pay rises for the, the lowest paid, including offering equity in the company, offering stock to more people in the company, but also including financial education and helping people plan their money differently. Dan Shulman found his changes didn't just make for a happier workforce. They also helped PayPal's bottom line because his employees stayed with him for longer. It costs money for a company to hire people. So losing people, failing to retain them, is expensive. And so if you can just avoid that, that is a huge boost to your profitability. Now, PayPal is an example of a company putting the S or social into ESG. It falls neatly under an often repeated trope that being a good corporate citizen is good for profits. But actions like PayPal's aren't immediately obvious on a company's balance sheet, which is where ESG gets messy. How do you measure the long-term benefit of, say, increasing workers' wages when the short-term impact on a company might well be an increase in costs? Yes, we all know how to measure a profit. But when companies come to an investor with reports about broad terms like purpose or impact or sustainability, investors are not at all confident that they can measure what one company presents them against what the next company does. So... Could accountants actually turn out to be ESG's heroes of the day? When the great crash of 1929 happened in the US, companies could still decide how to define their own profits. So if you were an investor in an American company at that time, you had to take it on trust that that company was defining profits in the same way as the company two doors down. After that huge financial meltdown, we saw the emergence of first national and then internationally agreed accounting standards. Now there's an effort to do the same for non-financial accounting. And that's being driven by very much the same bodies who are the guardians of, of bean counting on a global scale. And it's pulling in all sorts of people from the obvious big four audit firms to all sorts of academics, all sorts of people with causes, all sorts of lobbyists, etc., and companies themselves. Getting such a motley crew of people to agree on ESG metrics is no easy feat. Consider, for example, that the main indicator of economic growth, GDP, measures the extraction, transport and distribution of oil, but not the value of the oil itself when it's in the ground or the environmental cost of its carbon pollution. Which is why accountants, regulators and academics are now trying to create standards and new tools to measure ESG issues. And it's a pretty fraught, messy affair. Back to Gillian. There's a lot of arguments happening right now around how you create the metrics. And it's important to realize that they're never going to be perfect metrics at all, least of all in the areas like S, social factors, which are often pretty hard to define. And it's worth stating, by the way, that accounting metrics aren't universally agreed. Accounting is much of an art as a science. And once you've recognized that, or rather remembered that, it means that some of the discussions around ESG metrics 
need not distract you from the final goal, which is to simply get a new lens on how companies operate. And how do you do that, given that many companies operate on very short-term horizons, you know, quarterly earnings, that kind of thing? These kind of issues, environmental, social and governance issues, are long-term things. Now, the good news is that increasingly, even investors who might have short-term horizons are actually taking note of these longer-term issues as well. There's a growing recognition that companies have to look at these issues simply to comply with regulatory demands. For example, the very fact that regulators in Europe and now to a degree in the US are asking banks and financial companies to report on their carbon footprints and carbon emitting activities means that managers don't have the option anymore of just ignoring it. Because even if they have short term pressures from shareholders, they have to try and meet these new governmental standards. Meanwhile, though, on the investment side of things, there is evidence that funds that invest in the shares of companies that address ESG issues do better than those that don't which makes the backlash against ESG, as we heard from Tarek earlier, all the more surprising. What's not to like about an investment that's trying to do good and delivering returns? Back to Tarek's story. It's 2019. Tarek is two years into his job at BlackRock, and he's on a private jet flying to Madrid from Switzerland. He's fresh from giving a presentation to potential clients in Zurich about BlackRock's low-carbon ETF funds. They're funds that are invested only in companies and assets with a low-carbon footprint. Basically, he's on a high-carbon flight to sell low-carbon products. The irony doesn't escape him. It struck me as odd, but I sort of was, I was practical and I said, okay, well, you know, clearly being on a private jet to sell them doesn't look great. But on the other hand, given our size and scale, we could, on a net basis, create far more impact than it would cost us to fly around and sell and distribute these products. With the jagged peaks of the Alps and the Pyrenees rolling underneath, Tarek starts chatting to the BlackRock sales team flying with him. They're discussing a question that a client in Zurich had put to him. How does my buying a low-carbon ETF contribute to the fight against climate change? A perfectly reasonable question, or so Tarek thought. And so I tried to answer it the best I could because I thought it was an important question from a client that I would have asked myself. Tarek's answer goes something like this, and this is the bit where you really have to listen. By buying into a low-carbon ETF fund, you're sending a signal to carbon-polluting companies that they aren't desirable investments. Ultimately, as more people buy into low-carbon funds, that should make it more expensive for polluters to raise money or borrow from financial markets. It should create a market incentive for these companies to go green. Or that's the unproven theory, at least. As Tarek points out, there's no data or evidence to prove that this is actually happening. And the folks on that team were unhappy with my answer because they said, well, it's too long and plotting. Just stick to the talking points. This is a simple product. We need simple talking points as answers. And they were lecturing me on how to simplify the messaging around selling the product and effectively glossing over how it had any real world impact. And that was the point where I actually got into a little bit of an argument because I said, listen, my role is as a CIO of sustainable investing. If a client asks an important question around how this contributes to the fight against climate change, I need to be able to provide an intelligent answer. Like, I'm not going to roll over and let you say whatever you want to sell this product. But the sales team insisted. So what if there's no proof or data that these funds actually move the needle on climate change? They just needed to sell. 
they needed the fees BlackRock charges clients for managing these funds. And because BlackRock's fees, like that of many other big asset managers, are low by industry standards, the emphasis is on selling as many low-carbon funds to as many clients as possible. I, at that point, I started to realize that it wasn't their fault and they just needed to move product. You know, they weren't incentivized by lowering carbon emissions, right? They're trying to hit their quarterly earnings targets. They're trying to get their own bonuses. It was very clear to me that ESG data was not nearly as useful as it ought to be for investing processes because good behavior is not being rewarded in the way it needs to be. All those lofty ambitions about changing the world, reforming capitalism and helping to stop climate change, Tarek figured they were just window dressing for sales targets. By the end of the flight, he was asking himself, Why the hell am I here? As the plane landed in Madrid, Tarek was feeling deflated. In the end, I couldn't even sleep that night because it almost felt like the entire premise upon which I joined the firm, which is that this is some kind of win-win where we're going to get better returns and fix capitalism and do some bad. It wasn't that, right? It was just the same old thing that I always knew from before and I'd left some years earlier, trying to put a green wrapper on itself to sell product. We put Tarek's claims that ESG is a marketing gimmick to BlackRock. In response, it pointed to a $100 million philanthropic donation it's made to the Catalyst program. That's a program designed to spur development of clean energy technologies. BlackRock added that this donation comes on top of all the other work it's doing on sustainable investing products. But what does all of this mean for the question we asked right at the start? Where should someone who worries about climate change, social justice, inequality, where should they invest? There are things you can do within responsible investing that help you align your values with your portfolio. So if you don't want to be involved in carbon emitters, then you can divest of them or screen them out of your portfolio. And those are all things that you can do that are nice and make you feel better. But you cannot argue that those are creating real-world impact because they aren't. It takes us back to that point about measuring ESG, the fact that there are still few, if any, metrics to show just how effective companies are when they make pledges on environmental or social or governance issues. But Tarek now goes even further. He argues ESG is, in his words, a dangerous distraction. As evidence, he points to research that shows that as long as people think their investments are doing the job of, for example, fighting climate change, they'll be discouraged from piling pressure on government to take action. I think I contributed to a a large societal placebo that doesn't have to be that way. I do think that ESG people are going to be needed, right? You need people with sustainability expertise, you need ESG data, you need tools, you need standards. But I think that as long as all of that is accompanied by a thesis that says that those tools alone will solve our problems, then it's attached to a free market self-correct thesis that we have absolutely zero reason to believe can or will ever work, and it is extremely dangerous. Is he right? Gillian again. I would say that if ESG is regarded as something which lets governments off the hook, then it absolutely is a dangerous distraction. No questions about that at all. However, ESG should be seen as a risk management tool above all else right now. The crucial thing to understand is that today, I think most of the companies and financial groups that are involved in ESG are not doing it so much to actively change the world, but more because they want to avoid doing harm to themselves and running risks. Be that reputational risk, because they're worried that if 
they're seen to be doing things which are not ESG friendly, they'll be punished, be that regulatory risk, be that losing their employees, losing their customers, losing their investors, or having embarrassing scandals explode around, say, their supply chains. And so ESG for many companies today is about risk management, which is both good and bad. It's bad because you can say, well, it's just a bit of hypocrisy. Companies don't really care about this. But it's good in the sense that actually, once you define it as risk management, it comes into the centre stage of the C-suite and the board. So Gillian, is this truly the shift in the business consensus that some have held it as? Or could it just be a fad? I've covered genuine political revolutions early in my career as a journalist. And I know that revolutions succeed when a tiny minority of activists passionately believe in something, but when the silent majority of mainstream players decide that it's more risky for them to oppose a zeitgeist shift than to embrace it. And we're at that tipping point now. Lots of companies and financiers are being pulled along into the ESG currents because everyone else is going that way. And yes, that isn't quite what the original activists imagined would occur, but it's certainly creating positive change of the sort that the activists initially wanted to see. And so we get to where we are today in the ESG debate. One side sees it as the seedling of a new, more inclusive form of capitalism. The other dismisses it as a dangerous distraction. In the final episode of this series, we'll hear two of the FT's leading voices on opposite sides of the argument battle it out in a debate. But in our next episode, light bulbs, yogurt, and marrying profit with purpose, it got pretty sticky for one CEO. How people see Faber's departure at the known is like a real Rorschach test. People either saw it as, of course, he was fired because he was too green. That's so obvious, we don't even need to discuss it. Uh, and then other people, you know, really saw it as, well, no, I mean, it's just because the business was doing badly and he didn't do his job on the basics. You can read more about ESG investing from Gillian Tett and Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson and the Moral Money team at FT.com. I've included links to their reporting in the show notes. And as a listener to FT Podcasts, why not sign up for a 30-day free subscription to the FT's premium moral money newsletter? It includes complimentary access to FT.com for the same period. Head to FT.com slash Inside ESG to sign up. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui, with additional support from Josh Gebert-Doyen and Alice Fordham. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner, we had editorial direction from Rene Kaplan, and our head of audio is Cheryl Bromley. I'm Manuela Saragossa. Join me next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.